2, verses 11 to 21. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The word of the Lord. I was thinking about it this week, and maybe it's the same for you, but for me, there are a lot of uh, memorable experiences about my time in middle school. Um, a lot of stories many of you have probably heard. One in particular I like to tell, my mother's here today, she probably remembers driving me to this particular occasion. Uh, a, a lot of people here don't know and you, don't, you can be impressed, I, as a middle school boy, was a spelling champion. Um, again, be impressed. I rose from, from obscurity in a small town in South Georgia to become one of a group of, of, of premier spellers in the tri-state area, okay? I was invited to be a part of the regional spelling bee that they filmed at the local PBS station Tallahassee, Florida. It was, again, impressive. Until I got there and I saw the reality that laid before me. I walked into the room and immediately I knew these people are not my people. I, I don't know what to do with these people. I felt like an alien. I was a stranger in that land. I listened to the way they talked, the things they thought were hilarious, the stories they told. And I felt more and more throughout the day, as the, the field kind of thinned out in this spelling bee, I was still in it, and I felt more and more alienated and alone. I was just like, what am I doing here? And so I did something only a 14-year-old boy would do. They gave me a word, 
and I intentionally misspelled it. I knew how to spell the word. Don't ask me which word it was. I've tried to remember for years. It was an I-E word. Uh, it was one of those that was, it sounds like an I, but it's really an E. And I knew it. But I saw it as my only way out. It was my only way out. These are not my people, I thought. And it has taken years for me to realize. Like over the years as I've thought about it and laughed about it. The truth is, I just hadn't yet come to accept those were my people. They didn't have my personality, the same interest. Those are my people. We are spelling people. We know how to spell, right? But I had not accepted that. I had not accepted it yet. And so you know what I did? I, I hid myself. I pretended to be something I was not. And when, when Peter shows up in Antioch, he shows up to see that the church has been growing. And it's been growing in this interesting way that he's already seen in other places, but it just keeps happening more and more. I don't know if you remember in Acts chapter 10, there's this episode, this vision that Peter has. And if you remember Acts 10, in the vision, Peter's praying and God gives him this, this, this vision of, of all these foods. They're coming down from heaven, okay? And all the foods are unclean, foods that, that Peter would never have eaten, okay? And yet God is saying, eat. Kill and eat, he says. Don't call anything unclean that I have made clean, God says to him. He's inviting him to do a thing he had never done before. God was calling him to preach to Gentiles, to people that he had never really experienced preaching before, right? And Peter embraced this, right? He preaches first to this Roman centurion family. Cornelius. He prays for them to receive the Holy Spirit, and he watches it happen, right? And he continued to embrace this after that moment. When he shows up in Antioch, he's doing the same thing. He follows that same pattern. He's sitting with these new Gentile believers, sharing meals with them. He builds relationships with them. He's sitting around the table together with Gentiles. And he did that not just because they were now followers of Jesus, and that made them okay. They were safe. It wasn't just that. It was that he himself had been changed as well. He was no longer under Torah, the law. Everything had changed for them. Everything had changed for him. And so he was embracing this newfound freedom. Like the implication of all of this is, right? If Peter's sitting with Gentiles around their tables, that means he's sharing in their meals. He's eating food he's never eaten. It's literally taking place. He is refusing to call unclean what God has made clean. He's embracing it, right? At least until a group of, of more traditional, more conservative Jewish Christians come from Jerusalem. They, it says from, from James. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. It's not to badmouth James or Peter and all of this. But it's just to say they were representative of that traditional sort of idea of Jewish Christianity. And it was then when those people showed up that he began the act. He began to pretend as if he was someone he was not. He would not sit at the table with Gentiles any longer. He refused to share meals with them. When the other Jewish Christians arrived, he made clear, these are not my people. Don't be confused. I don't sit with them. They may have come to Christ, but this thing still remains. It was a unique kind of hypocrisy. And that's what Paul is addressing here. It's hypocrisy on one level because Peter doesn't live under the law anymore. He has not for quite some time at this point. Yet he's asking Gentiles who don't even know the law to conform to that law. 
and that law traditionally condemned the eating of, of Jews with Gentiles. You, you just don't mix fellowship in that sort of way, not around the table. It's hypocritical in the sense that how could you ask someone to conform to a law that you don't follow yourself, right? But it's hypocritical on another level, right? Peter himself doesn't even believe it's necessary what he's doing, this act he's putting on, this separation of himself from the Gentiles. He doesn't even believe he needs to eat separately from them, but he pretends as if he does all to, to maintain an appearance. It's hypocrisy. Because Peter feels the pressure we talked a bit about last week. You guys might remember that. We talked about it. There was this pressure both from Rome, from, from Gentile people, the majority of their culture, and also from the Jewish establishment to look more Jewish. There was a pressure they felt. And Peter found himself feeling that, that pressure. And he gives into it. Now, Paul is telling us all of this not to shame Peter or to kind of like sully his reputation in some sort of way. That, that's not it. He's telling us all of this because their churches in Galatia are just like our churches. People are talking. Peter and Paul are two of the most important figures in the early church, and they had a clash. Everybody's talking about it. It's being twisted and spun in every kind of direction, and Paul's going to tell them what really happened. This is how it actually happened. And Paul, in all of this, again, it's not about making Peter look bad. It's about helping them understand this is wrong at any level, what's happening in the church. People separating themselves from Gentiles who have come to faith. Separating themselves, not willing to, to proclaim the gospel to, to Gentiles. He's making clear this is a problem even if somebody like Peter is the one who's guilty. It doesn't matter who it is. Even Peter would be guilty for doing such a thing. And so if we said last week, like the central question in Galatians is what does it mean to be a people of the resurrected Messiah? In this particular chapter, this particular episode, it's as if Paul is asking that question of the church in this particular situation. When it comes to our relationship with one another, between Jew and Gentile, between you and the other, whoever that may be, what does it mean to be a people of the resurrected Messiah? Right? He's asking the question, like, what is the identity of the people of God? Is it the resurrection or is it not? What is the identity of the people of God? Is, is so foundational to all of this. Because remember, for thousands of years, their whole lives, these people who were Jewish prior to converting to Christianity would have lived their entire law, lives under the law. This was where their identity was tied to, was Torah, right? And how they lived according to it. That's what made them righteous. It's what made them God's people. And in some sense, it, as a culture, it, it made them Jewish, this law. Their obedience to this law. And now Paul is saying, our identity as followers of Jesus, our righteousness, is no longer tied to the law. Our identity and our righteousness are tied solely to the resurrection of Jesus. This is what binds us together. This is what makes us who we are. His resurrection, this gospel, this is what becomes our identity. And if that's true of us, Paul is saying, then it's true of them. Whoever them may be in your mind, it's true of them as well. Their identity, their righteousness is tied to the resurrection. See, the, the resurrection for Paul doesn't just change how I view myself on some individual level. God loves me. The, the resurrection changes not just the way I see self, but the way I see 
other. The way I see those beyond myself, right? It changes the way I view not just my salvation, but our salvation. It changes forever how we see others. And the thing that's easy, I think it's easy for us to kind of like shake our heads and say, yes, Peter, how could you? But that's because we're a culture that is so deeply shaped by the teachings of Jesus, by the writings of Paul, people who push for these things the equality of these people in the church, the value they share as people made in the image of God, right? All from scripture, right? But for a a long time, the world had been divided into the two neat categories, right? In the Jewish mind, there were two categories of person. There were the righteous and there were sinners. Pretty simple, right? In their culture, the righteous were those who lived under the law. But then there were other people within the Jewish culture who decided they'd had enough of the law. They never seemed to be able to live up to it. They weren't interested in living according to it. And so they had rejected it, right? They were the sinners. It was a well-defined category, right? Everybody knew about it. And that's why when the Pharisees go around accusing Jesus of eating with tax collectors, and then there's this word in Greek, sinners, hamartaloi, right? Everybody knows exactly what they mean. Oh, those people that refuse to live under the law, who live their life bound by a different identity, a different righteousness, right? They refuse to live under this law. Everybody knows exactly who they're talking about, right? Obviously, everybody is capable of sinning. No Jewish person at the time would have been claiming that they were not guilty of sin, but these people openly sin. They don't repent. They don't adhere to the law and what it tells them they need to do in reference to their sin. They don't worship Yahweh and they don't live by the law. Therefore, they're sinners. Expand that to the global level. Start thinking outside of just the Jewish culture and start thinking about Gentiles. And it's very simple. You don't have the law, you can't be righteous. We have the law, we can be righteous. You are righteous, I mean, we are righteous, you are sinners, right? At the simplest level, their minds had seen things this way for so long. It is us versus them. It's an us and them dynamic that had existed for a very long time. It was a a misunderstanding, largely, uh, in their minds of what God's law had taught them. But the law was given originally to allow God's people to live in his presence, right? That's what it was about. It was not about having his people jump through hoops to impress him. It was about them being able to live in the presence of a holy God. If God is holy and his desire is to live with his people and be known by them, how can he do such a thing unless they are holy? How can they be made holy? This is the law. They're given the law so that they can be made righteous in his sight, holy, so that they can live in his presence. Their identity as Jewish people is tied completely to it. Without this covenant, without these requirements, in their minds, they have nothing. What do they have but this? This is so precious in their eyes. This is what made them unique among all the other nations around them. The law was what made them different. It was so precious, right? And Paul agreed until he met the resurrected Jesus. Paul agrees with that completely. Paul was zealous for the law. You know the stories of of Paul before he was Paul, right? When he was Saul. But Jesus disrupted his little journey to Damascus. The resurrected Jesus changes everything in that moment, right? Now their identity had shifted because here was Jesus, the word of God. 
God's word, as John calls him. He was God's definitive, perfect word, the living word spoken to his people. God decided to speak to his people in flesh. Once the law had been God's word to his people, right? This is how he had spoken to his people. This is how he'd made himself known was the law. It was his word to them. But now, just as Jeremiah had been telling them, God desired to write his law on human hearts. Not on tablets of stone, but on their hearts, right? And Jesus becomes the first evidence of it. Here is the law in flesh. The law lived out. Here is a man who fulfills the law perfectly. And that's why Jesus himself would say it. Listen, I didn't come to abolish the law as if he rejects it, it having no value, as if it was some sort of mistake from their past. No, he says, I'm not come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. It is fulfilled in me, his life, death, and resurrection. But what we know about Jesus is that Jesus was a scandalous figure in his culture. Trouble followed him everywhere because of this. He had this tendency to spend all of his time with people who fell on the wrong side of this, this, this set of categories, right? He didn't spend as much time with the righteous as he did with sinners. He had a tendency to, to eat, in particular, with sinners, Jesus was dismantling the notion of who the righteous were and who the sinners were. Our understanding of, of who fit into which category. Jesus was destroying the us versus them scenario that had existed for so long. This is who he is. And Paul is arguing, if your identity is tied to the resurrected Jesus, then it means all this other stuff that once defined you, it goes away. The way you relate to outsiders and sinners and Gentiles and the poor and your enemy and whoever them might be for you, it changes forever because of this gospel. It has to change or else, Paul says, the gospel's a lie. The gospel's a fairy tale. Jesus died for nothing otherwise. Either you believe this to be true or Jesus was wasting his time on the cross, Paul says. This is where he's taking us. And I think as we reflect on that, the question we always come to as we read scripture, again, 2,000 years separating us from these people, the question is, what, what is the modern equivalent of such a scenario? How is this happening in our culture? How is this happening in the church? And I think a lot of times we think it's pretty obvious uh, but in reality, it's hard to know because the, the divide that existed between a Jew and a Gentile in the ancient world in the Jewish mind went far deeper than I think we often recognize. A lot of times, again, the first thing we would say is, well, I mean, racism, obviously, right? Like this speaks powerfully to racism. I agree. This passage is used so often to speak to our conversations about racism within our society, within the history of the church, and it's so important for us to hear that. But no, this goes deeper than race or ethnicity. It's deeper than what we've even seen. Because the thing you have to know is that in the Jewish tradition, a person could become Jewish. There were many African Jews. That did not keep them. That did not exclude them somehow from the Jewish life. The same thing with, with Gentiles. There were many Roman, what we would say white Jewish people, people who had converted. 
it had happened, right? So you've got traditional folks that we would normally think of as Jewish, Middle Eastern, Arabs that would convert. You have blacks, whites. The Jewish tradition is diverse at this point. Many people have decided to become Jewish. That was not the only issue. It's not just a matter of race or ethnicity. It goes deeper than that because the law was what bound them together. Regardless of skin color, right, you could be bound together by the law. If we choose together to live under this law, but if the law is not there, if you choose not to live under the law, well, that's much more problematic than skin color because you're, you're not just different. You're toxic, even repulsive. I cannot sit down at the table with you. You're unclean in this way. I don't want to bring any of this on myself. I don't want to be seen as unrighteous by being near you, right? It's so much deeper than what we tend to see. And it's hard to change that kind of perspective. That's what Peter's wrestling with. That's what everybody was wrestling with in the early church. How do I change that kind of perspective, something that runs that deep? But our, our culture does have plenty of things that are, that are equivalent. There are ways of thinking we have. We're not that far from it. Um, if you want to talk about racism, I mean, I think it's, it's pretty obvious. We're a room full of white people for the, the, the main part, right? White people tend to think they understand black people in our culture. Maybe that's because they read Toni Morrison uh, or they read, you know, a couple of Martin Luther King speeches. Um, they have a, a couple of friends, but most of it's these stereotypes and cliches. Uh, it's mostly formed from television and, and media. And we, yeah, again, even in the most subtle sort of ways, we don't realize it. We, we think we understand these people, but we spend so little time around the table with them to actually know better. The way we don't actually understand them, right? The reverse is true as well. That happens. I think blacks in our culture are so much better at being able to understand white culture because guess what? They've been saturated by it, right? Our culture is, is majority white. They're a little bit more familiar with the reality of white culture, but still there are misunderstandings that exist. Why? Because we still don't share tables very often. It's the reality of the thing, right? There is still a, a distance, a misunderstanding that often happens, a read of whiteness that sometimes is out of touch with reality. Step beyond racism and start thinking about the conversation on, on like religion and faith, right? Our culture tends to make the assumption that anyone religious is also oppressive, that their religion is inherently oppressive to them, but really they just live in fear. Their whole lives are, are filled with this sense of, of like fear, concern, right? We're bigoted and small-minded and sexually repressive. That's, that's the church for you. We're small-minded. We refuse to allow people to be free. And the reverse often happens as well. Christians tend to assume that anyone who calls themselves agnostic or, or atheist or just non-spiritual or non-religious, whatever kind of category they apply to themselves, we assume many times... I think most of you probably don't, but there are so many in the church who are going to say, well, then obviously that's a satanic influence in the world, and they are what's wrong with the world. They are toxic, they are repulsive, and they are what's wrong with our society. They need to be converted or they need to die. This is the fundamentalist mindset very often. This is what creates uh, these scenarios where somebody walks into a building full of people with a gun in their hand, right? This sort of mindset, right? We see it. Politics is kind of the same. Um, on the political kind of spectrum, things get kind of nasty. Uh, political conservatives tend to call all political liberals Nazis. Political liberals tend to call all political conservatives Nazis. 
Uh, apparently, we need to, to, to find somebody worse than Nazis so we can get their name out of our mouths because we like to accuse each other of being Nazis. It's a thing we do. But on both ends of the spectrum, we're calling each other these sorts of names, right? We think we understand one another, and yet we spend so little time together. Toxic or repulsive. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do. I can't relate to that. I can't be around that. It's hard to sit at a table with someone you have such polarizing kind of preconceived notions of. And Paul is saying, either Jesus died and was resurrected, and all of these lines that we draw have been erased, or we will continue to live according to the lines that we have drawn in the sand, and the gospel is a lie. Jesus died for nothing. Paul is saying, with Jesus, the us versus them narrative was crucified. Either we believe it or we don't, Paul is saying. Paul does this thing. It's in uh, verse 15, if you guys want to follow along. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. He's being facetious there, by the way. It seems like he's being very facetious. He's trying to divide the world into those two categories, right? We Jews, the righteous, and these sinful Gentiles. We are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, and we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus. Again, when he says we, he means Jewish Christians, people who were born into the Jewish tradition, but who became followers of Jesus. It means we the righteous, right, as we see ourselves. We know, he says, that our righteousness does not come from the law, though. And so we put our faith in Jesus, that we might be justified. All something I think you're familiar with, right? You know this, a, a pretty simple statement of the gospel, what we believe. We're saved by grace through faith, as he'll say in Ephesians, right? We get that. But just to clarify a bit, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of something like that, that we're justified by faith. By faith, we are justified. Because a lot of things happen in our minds there, right? Because for many people, the sense they have, what this means, is that because I believe in Jesus, I am justified. As if, and this is where it becomes a struggle. This is why a lot of people doubt their faith and, and what eternity looks like and whether or not they're really a believer. Because they doubt. And that's because they have this idea in their minds. What that means is that if I believe strongly enough and consistently enough and faithfully enough, then I am justified. I've chosen to place my faith and I believe hard enough. But that's not what it's really saying. It's not that because I believe in Jesus, I'm now justified. It means in reality, Jesus has been faithful and so I'm justified. The Greek is really complicated and it's messy and all the theologians are arguing about it. Uh, they love each other, but they're, they're, they're chattering back and forth all the time. Throughout history, they've been doing this, right? And this word in Greek, pistis, it means faith. But it also means other things, like faithfulness, like trust, like belief. It can mean all of those things, right? And normally when it's used in this particular way in other places, when it's being used as an object of Jesus, right, it's Jesus' faithfulness that justifies me and not my faith here. That's what's being said. I am justified not by my belief, but by Jesus' faithfulness. So what I believe in is the faithfulness of Jesus. 
And so when my doubts come, I believe he remains as faithful as he was in the beginning. I am justified by him, right? I believe in the faithfulness of Jesus. I believe that Jesus made those who were once sinners righteous. And so Paul will say, if I tried to rebuild what was destroyed, right? If I tried to rebuild the law, he's saying. If I tried to make others live according to the law that I no longer live according to, he says, I would not just be a sinner. I'd be something worse. Maybe you caught that. He shifts from the word sinner to the word lawbreaker. It's worse. The lawbreaker in Greek, this word, refers to the person who's not just a sinner, but it's a sinner who knows better. They know the law, and they transgress anyway. It's a deeper sort of sin. If I try to rebuild the law, if I ask somebody else to conform to this thing that I don't live by any longer, I would, I'd be a lawbreaker. I know better, and I still do it, and I'm a worse sinner than whoever it is I'm trying to exclude from the gospel of Jesus for doing it. So I might identify them as, as them, as other, as sinful, as toxic, as repulsive, whatever sort of language we might use, I've become worse than them in trying to exclude them from the reality of the gospel of Jesus, right? For he says, and you probably know this, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and this life I now live in the body. I live by him, right, he's saying. This is where he's going. This isn't just an identity shift. This is, there's been a death in the family. I no longer live. I am dead, and yet Christ has raised me. Now I am alive in this new kind of way. But though I am alive, he says, it's not me that's at work in this body of mine. It's not me that's at work in this flesh of mine. It is the resurrected Christ living in me, right? If that's true, Paul says, then it means all of my old perspectives, all the old ways through which I, I saw the world, all my efforts, all my mistakes, all my sins, all my addictions died along with Christ. All these sort of unhealthy attachments, all these perspectives, they, they went into the grave as well. And it is his righteousness, his justice, his love and his mercy and his faithfulness, that is what's radiating through me now. This is the idea because Christ is the one who's living in me. Paul is saying, my friends, the law can't do that. Rules can't do that. No matter how good you are, how faithful you are in all of this, the law just can't produce that kind of fruit. It is only the Spirit of God that can do such a thing. It is only Christ in you that can actually do such a thing. Because remember, the divide between these people goes deep. Nothing can change that perspective except Christ in me. If the law can't do that, why would I ask somebody else to live according to it as if it could? Why would I ask someone to conform to a standard that, that I can't even hold up under? Okay, so last week I used a quote uh, from, from N.T. Wright. Uh, sorry, he, he released a new commentary on Galatians and it's really helpful. Uh, one more quote this week and it's a little wordy and it, it's got some theological terms that I want to parse out but I think it's really helpful as, as we come to the end here. So Holt's going to throw this up on the screen for us, or David, sorry, David's in the back. 
Like give David a hand or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> this is what Wright says about Galatians. He says, ecclesiology, Paul's main concern in Galatians, is not an alternative to soteriology. It is its public display. Soteriology, excuse me, ecclesiology, is not an alternative to soteriology. It is its public display. And I know those words coming out of my mouth, they just sound boring. I get it. I know you just wanted to like get up and leave, and you're like, why are you saying this? Leave us alone. Just let us sing and, and come to the table. Stop with all of these words. I know. But seriously, ecclesiology, here it is. Ecclesiology at the simplest level is what we believe about the church. It's our theology of church, how the church functions in this world, what it's supposed to be. This is what we believe about church, okay? So ecclesiology, read church, right? Soteriology, what we believe about salvation, how salvation comes to us, how we are saved, right? So when you read soteriology, read salvation, right? And Wright's argument in the whole thing is, Galatians is really not just about salvation. Normally when we talk about Galatians, we're always talking about salvation. He says Romans is all about salvation. Galatians is about church. The church is a mess in Galatia. They've got this serious issue there. So he's not just talking about salvation or soteriology, right? He says ecclesiology, Paul's main concern in Galatians, is not an alternative, though, to salvation. It's not like he's saying salvation doesn't matter or it's not an important conversation. He says, instead, it is its public display. Does that make sense, right? The church is the public display of salvation. That's what this is all about. Paul is saying, we can't even talk about salvation yet because we're getting it wrong at the church level. The church must become the public display of the resurrection of Jesus. What that means, it can't just be some theological concept. It can't just be something you believe and you celebrate on Easter as we're doing in this season. No, it must be publicly put on display in the way we are living life. And Paul says, that is not the case. How is it if the church is to be the public display of the resurrection of Jesus at work, that the church has instead become the display of all these prejudices and bias, all these old lines that have been drawn in the sand? How have we put those on display instead? How is it that we've become a people displaying something other than the resurrection of Jesus? It's not an alternative. It is the public display of the thing. The church is where salvation becomes more than just a concept. It's put in flesh. Flesh and bone revealing the reality of resurrection. This is the church. And Paul is once again asking us, what does it mean to be a people of the resurrected Messiah? If you attach his name to yours, if you claim this, that you're a co-heir with him, how is it that you've begun to display something else? It's important for us to ask the question. As we come to the table, I think it's so good. As the, the band comes this morning, it's good for us to be asking this question together. Because I think uh, as a church, we talk about this often, and I think it's good. It, I celebrate that I'm in a church where people don't start to kind of like wince when I say these things, but people nod their heads instead. But the reality is there are still so many subtle ways in which we're drawing lines, in which we're separating ourselves, distancing ourselves. And what's incredible about the table is as we come, we're reminded you can't draw lines around this table. You can't create boundaries as easily around this table because the only place I have at this table is by his righteousness.
It's his body and his blood that make me righteous, that allow me to come to this table. None of us comes to this table with a righteousness of our own. We come with something that we've inherited, something that's been given to us. We gather at this table only because of that. And this table is becoming our identity more and more day after day. Not all these boundaries that we put up to keep people out. Not all these political ideas or ideas about race and ethnicity or about socioeconomic realities in our society, whatever it might be. The table is breaking down all of it. The body and blood of Jesus, the bread and the cup, breaking down all of it. This is where our identity is. His body and his blood. Nothing short of it. The death and resurrection of Jesus is our whole foundation. It is who we are, and it is meant to be put on display in us in the most subtle and quiet and sometimes invisible kinds of ways and how we relate to others. The us versus them dynamic is dying. It's so much bigger than we often realize. As we come to the table, like what's, who's the them in our mind still? Who is it? The person that when they, when they begin to talk, it just grates and we're like, no, nah, I got to get out of the room before I say something mean. Like who's that person? Because we need to be sharing the table with them more. Who are the people that we're distancing ourselves from for no other reason? I just can't. These are not my people. Who are they? And how do we begin to, to base our identity in something other than what it has been for so long? Let's pray. Father, as we come to your table, God, we pray that you help us to, to recognize we don't understand one another as, we, as well as we think we do. And we're not as woke as we think we are. We're not as um, enlightened as we think we are. And we have so many flaws, God. And there's so much of who we once were that still remains, God. But we invite you by your spirit. Would you make us a display of your resurrection power at work? Christ, we invite you. Would you live in and through us? Make yourself known through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.